Chapter 12 of Countess Erika's Apprenticeship. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Gwene Mala. Countess Erika's Apprenticeship by Osip Shubin. Translated by Annie Sleevister. Chapter 12. Meanwhile, the sky had become overcast. A keen wind began to blow, and large drops of rain were falling before Erika reached the door of the lodgings in Maximilian Street. As she mounted the staircase, she heard her grandmother's voice in the drawing room and recognized the cordial tone which she used when speaking to the few people in the world with whom she was in genuine sympathy. Nevertheless, Agitated by her late interview, Erika inwardly deplored the arrangement of their apartments which made it impossible that she should reach her bedroom without passing through the drawing room. She opened the door. Her grandmother was seated on the sofa and near her in an armchair with his back to the casement window was a man in civilian's dress. He arose looking so tall that it seemed to Erika he must strike his head against the low ceiling of the room. She did not instantly recognize him as he stood with his back to the light, but before he had advanced a step, she exclaimed, Goswin, and ran to him with both hands extended. When, with rather formal courtesy, he kissed one of the hands thus held out, as if seeking soccer, and then dropped it without any very cordial pressure. She was assailed by a certain embarrassment. She remembered that she should have called him her fancito, and that it became her to receive her rejected suitor with the more measured dignity. But she was not self-possessed today. The shock of meeting her stepfather had unstrung her nerves. The numbness, which had of late paralyzed sensation, began to depart. Her youthful heart throbbed almost as loudly as it had done when she had first ascended the thickly carpeted staircase in Bellevue Street, as strongly as upon that brilliant Thursday at the Countess Brock's, when suddenly overcome by the memory of her unhappy mother, she had fled from the crowd of her admirers to sob out her misery in some lonely corner. Lord Langney's worldly wise self-possessed betrothed had vanished, and in her stead was a shy, emotional young person, oppressed by a sense of her exaggerated cordiality towards the guest. She now seated herself as far as possible from him in one of the red plush armchairs. How long have you been in Beirut, her fancido? She asked in a timid little voice, which thrilled the young officer's heart like an echo of bygone times. Erika, whose eyes had become accustomed to the darkened light of the room, noted that he smiled, his old kind smile. His features looked more sharply chiseled than formerly. He had grown very thin and had lost every trace of the slight clumsiness which had once characterized him. I came several days ago. My musical feast is already a thing of the past, he replied. Indeed? And what then keeps you in Beirut? Erika asked. He laughed a little forced laugh and then blushed after his old fashion, but replied very quietly. I learned from your factotum Ludek, whom I met the day before yesterday, that you were coming, 
and so I determined to await your arrival. She longed to say something cordial and kind to him, but the words would not come. Instead, her grandmother spoke. It was kind of you to stay in this tiresome old hole just to see us. I call it very kind, she assured him. And Erika added meekly, so do I. A pause ensued, broken finally by Goswin. Let me offer you my best wishes on the occasion of your betrothal, Countess Erika. He uttered the words very bravely, but Erika could not respond. She suddenly felt that she had cause to be ashamed of herself, although what that cause was she did not know. Are you acquainted with Lord Langley Goswin? The old countess asked in the icy tone which she always assumed when any allusion was made to her granddaughter's engagement. No. You can imagine how eager I am to hear about him. He is one of the most entertaining Englishmen I have ever met. A very clever man, the countess declared as if discussing someone in whom she took no personal interest. It was not to be supposed that the Countess Erika would sacrifice her freedom to any ordinary individual, said Goswin with admirable self-control. For all reply, the Countess raised the clumsy teacup before her to her lips. With every word thus spoken, Erika's sense of shame deepened, and she was seized with an intense desire to be frank with Goswin and to dispel any illusion he might entertain as to her betrothal. Lord Langley is no longer young, she said hurriedly. I will show you his photograph. She went into the adjoining room and brought thence the photograph in its case, which she opened herself before handing it to Goswin. He looked at the picture, then at her, and then again at the picture. His broad shoulders twitched. Without a word, he closed the case and put it upon a table beside which Erika had taken her seat. An embarrassing silence ensued. The sound of rolling vehicles was heard distinctly from below and one stopped before the dark doorway. Soon afterwards, the staircase creaked beneath her heavy tread. Ludek opened the low door of the old-fashioned apartment and announced, Frau Countess Brock. A wicked fairy unconsciously had a novel experience. Her appearance was a relief. As usual, she bowed and nodded on all sides, but she was unable for the moment to find her eyeglass. She saw nobody and fell into the error of supposing a tall India rubber tree in a tub before a window to be her particular friend, the Chamberlain Langfeld. Not until Goswin discovered the eyeglass hanging by its slender cord among the jet ornaments and fringes, with which her mantle was trimmed and humanly handed it to her, did she find out her mistake. Goswin was about to withdraw after having rendered her this service, but she tapped him reproachfully on the shoulder and begged him to stay a moment with his old aunt. He might have resisted her request, but when Countess Landoff added that he would please her by remaining, he complied and seated himself again, although with something of the awkwardness apt to be shown by an officer when in civilian's dress. The wicked fairy established herself beside the Countess Anna upon the sofa behind the round table and accepted from Erika's hand a cup of tea, which she drank in affected little sips. She was clad, as usual, in trailing morning robes 
although no one could have told for whom she wore them and the countess anna's first question was do you not dislike wandering about behruth as the queen of night on the contrary replied the wicked fairy rubbing her hands i like it a while ago one of my friends declared that i appeared in behruth as the morning ghost of classic music was it not charming but not at all appropriate for i adore wagner and she began to hum the air of the flag girl scene try lili lili li what do you think of persifal countess anna asked turning to goswin one of the greatest humbugs of the century eh? they howl as if possessed by an evil spirit and call it joy call it song at the risk of falling greatly in your esteem i must confess that persifal made a profound impression upon me countess goswin replied e to brute his old friend exclaimed i do not entirely approve of it if that is anything in my favor he rejoined ah there is nothing like wagner there is but one god and one wagner the wicked fairy went on humming closing her eyes and waving her hands affectedly in the air the scene containing the air which you are humming is not one of my favorites goswin remarked oh it charmed us most of all dorothy and me the wicked fairy declared those hovering little temptresses so seductive and persifal the chaste in their midst she clasped her hands in an ecstasy the other evening at frau wagner's we met vandick he is rather strong in his mode of speech dorothy seemed much entertained by him but afterwards she thought him shocking your niece seems to have a positive mania just now for thinking everything shocking countess anna said dryly she sings no more music hall ditties and casts down her eyes modestly when she sees a french novel in a bookshop such a transformation is to say the least startling oh i beg pardon goswin i always forget that dorothea is your sister in law no need to remember it while we are among ourselves goswin rejoined coram publico i would beg you to modify your expressions for my poor brother's sake he cannot endure thea countess brock said laughing as she shook her forefinger at him but i know why that is so look how he blushes in fact goswin had changed color he fell in love with her in florence she told me all about it ah does she really fancy so or has she invented the story for her own amusement goswin murmured as if to himself the fairy continued to giggle and writhe about in the corner of the sofa you must have been much with dorothy of late the countess anna remarked quietly you have acquired all her airs and graces is the lady in question in bayreuth at present no she left early this morning for berlin where she has various matters to attend to before she goes to hellingdam but we have been together for some time we were in stangenbad for 6 weeks oh we enjoyed ourselves excessively made all sorts of acquaintances whom we should never have spoken to at home but i came to see you anna for a special purpose two purposes i might say one concerns hedwig nobis birthday her 70th and the other yes the other guess whom i met in stangenbad she threw back her head and folded her arms across her breast 
the very impersonation of anticipated enjoyment in a disagreeable announcement. How can I? Your granddaughter's stepfather, yes, nodding emphatically. Erika started. Countess Lendorf said calmly, Indeed, I pity you from my heart. But since I had no share in bringing such a misfortune upon you, I owe you no further reparation. Hmm, you need not pity me. He interested me extremely. You and your granddaughter have seen fit simply to ignore him. But you do not know what people say. Nor does it interest me in the least. Well, you may not care about the verdict of society. But it is comfortable to stand well with one's conscience, as Dorothea said to me the other day. Indeed, did she say that to you? Countess Anna murmured in an undertone. Yes, and she was indignant at the way in which you have treated the poor man. Is it any affair of hers? Countess Landoff asked sharply. Oh, she is quite right. I am entirely of her opinion, the fairy went on. Then turning to Erika, I cannot help remonstrating with you. He certainly cared for you like a father until you were seventeen. He was a man whom your mother loved passionately. Erika sat as if turned to marble. Every word spoken by the old fairy was like a blow in the face to her. The Countess Landoff's eyes flashed angrily. Do not meddle with what you do not in the least understand, Alice, she exclaimed. As for my daughter-in-law's passion for that stupid weakling, it was made up of pity on the one hand for a man whom she came to know wounded and ill, and on the other hand of antagonism towards me. The fact is, I provoked her. The marriage would never have taken place if I had not most injudiciously set myself in opposition to Emma's betrothal to the pole. Her second marriage was a tragedy. The result of obstinacy, not of love. My dear Anna, that is entirely your idea, the Countess Brock asserted. Everyone knows that you cannot appreciate any tenderness of affection because your own heart is clad in armour. But you can never convince me that your daughter-in-law did not love the Pole passionately. In the first place, her passion for him was the only possible motive for her marriage. How else could it have occurred to her? Bah, nonsense. And in the second place, Stanchinsky read me her letters, letters written soon after their marriage. He carries these proofs everywhere with him. His devotion to his dead wife is most touching. Poor man. He wept when he read the letters to us and we wept too. I had invited a few friends and he spent two evenings in reading them aloud to us. When he had finished, he kissed the letters and said with a deep sigh, This is all that is left to me of my poor adored Emma. And then he told us of the tender relations that had existed between himself and his stepdaughter until she, when a brilliant lot fell to her share, had cast him aside like an old shoestring, as he expressed it. I do not say that such a connection is the most desirable. But... O Shuasi Shizami, O Subisi Paho. Certain duties must be conscientiously fulfilled. And my dear Erika, be sure that I advise you for your good when I beg you to be friends with your stepfather. You owe him a certain amount of filial affection. He is here in Beirut and has requested me to effect a reconciliation between you and him. 
Erika made no reply. She sat motionless, speechless. The fairy played her last trump. People are talking about your unjustifiable treatment of him, she said. But that can all be arranged. May I tell him that you are ready to receive him, Anna? The Countess Landoff rose to her feet. Indeed, she exclaimed with an outburst of indignation. You wish me to receive a man who for the sake of exciting sympathy reads aloud to your invited guests the letters of his dead wife? What do you take me for? I will have him turned out of doors if he dares to show his face here. And I have no more time at present to listen to you, Alice. I am going to pay a visit to Hedwig Norbin. Will you come with me? With the greatest pleasure, cried the wicked fairy, decidedly cowed. Bring me my bonnet and gloves from my room, my child, her grandmother said to Erika. And when the girl brought them to her, she kissed her on the cheek. Goswin had risen to depart with the two ladies. Erika looked after him dully, as after taking a formal leave of her, he had reached the door of the room. Then she suddenly followed him. Goswin, she murmured, stay for one moment. He stayed. The door closed after the others and they were alone. What did she want of him? He did not know. She herself did not know. He would advise her, rid her of the weight upon her heart, her old habit of appealing to him in all difficulties returned to her in full force. The time was passed for her when she could relieve herself in any distressing agitation by a burst of tears. She sat there white and silent, plucking at the folds of her black lace dress. At last, passing her hand across her forehead once or twice, she began in a forced monotone. You know that I idolized my mother. I have told you about her. Perhaps you remember. I do not think I have forgotten much that you have ever told me. He interrupted her. The words were kind, but something in his tone pained her. Something interposed between them. It had seemed so natural to turn to him for sympathy, but she suddenly felt shy. What was her distress to him? Forgive me, she murmured. I long to pour out my heart to someone. I have no one to go to, and I suffer so. You cannot imagine what this last quarter of an hour has been to me. My poor mother's marriage was a tragedy. My grandmother was right. No one who did not live with her can dream of all that she suffered for years. Her last request to me when she was dying was that I would not let him come to her. And now that wretch is boasting to strangers, oh, I cannot endure it. Can you understand what it all is to me? Can you understand? The question was superfluous. She knew very well that he understood. But she repeated the words mechanically again and again. Why did he sit there so straight and silent? She was pouring out her soul to him, revealing to him all that was most sacred. And he had not one word of sympathy for her? A kind of anger took possession of her, and with all the self-control which she could summon up, she said more calmly, I know I have no right to burden you with my misery. Countess Erika, he exclaimed with a sudden unconscious movement of his hand, which chanced to strike the case containing Lord Langley's photograph. It fell on the floor. Goswin picked it up and tossed it contemptuously upon the table, while his face grew hard and stern. He was the first to break the silence that followed. Is this Stranchiski staying in Beirut? Yes, I met him today. 
Do you know his address? No. Why do you ask? For the simplest reason in the world, I wish to procure your mother's letters for you. The letters? She exclaimed. Oh, if that were possible. But upon what pretext could you demand them of him? They belong to him. We have no right to them. Might is right with such a fellow as that, Goswin said as he rose to go. She offered him her hand. He took it courteously, but there was no cordial pressure on his part, nor did he carry it to his lips. In a moment he was gone. She stood gazing as if spellbound at the door which closed behind him. She did not understand. He was the same. But in his eyes, she was no longer what she had been. This conviction flashed upon her. He was as ever ready to help her. But the tender warmth of sympathy of former days had gone, as had the reverence with which the strong man had been wont to regard her weakness. She was neither so dear nor so sacred to him as she had been. In the midst of the pain caused her by the wicked fairy's malicious speeches, she was aware of paralyzing consciousness that she had sunk in the esteem of the one human being in the world whom she prized most highly. When the Countess Landoff returned at the end of an hour, her granddaughter was still sitting where she had left her in the dark. When Erika heard her grandmother coming, she slipped into her own room. End of chapter 12